Hey guys, this is Sarah. Welcome to episode five of Talking Fanfic. Today we have such a great interview for you. Um, I interviewed Sue Sees It earlier this afternoon, and she was such a delight. I had such a great time. Um, just a really easy person to talk to, and her work is some of my favorite in the fandom. And um, as we'll talk about, she was one of the first to write uh, the pairing of Johnny and Daniel. And that's that ship or that pairing of characters is what we call La Russo. It's pronounced slightly differently than La Russo. So we do talk about in this um, workshop interview her work, um, specifically a series that she did in... The spring of 2018, she wrote them fairly quickly. I think there's 14, yeah, there's 14 individual stories that make up this series. And it's one of the first things I read in the fandom, and it's always been at the top of my list. And she set the bar high for this pairing. Um, so we talk generally about her story, We and we, we get on all kinds of tangents. We talk about quarantine and what that has how that has affected her writing um and how that may continue to affect her writing in the future and all of us so that comes up a lot and um stuff like music that's been influencing her with her current work currently she's been doing um some pieces centering around dimitri and eli or hawk so those are great and we talk about our mutual love of the beatles um, and we talk about a ton of things in the show. I almost kind of wish I would have done a better job focusing on her story because she was so easy to talk to that I feel like we got off track a little bit. But in that way, that does make this episode, I think, really palatable for people who aren't interested particularly in a romantic relationship between Johnny and Daniel. So if you're not into that, I still hope you give the episode a try because um, she's a ton of fun. Um... And we did touch on most of the major themes of the work. Um, like I said, I'm getting used to this workshop thing, and I want to try to do a better job of digging into the text. Um, but one thing in particular that I wanted to mention was that in her style of writing, which is just, it's just beautiful prose, and she does have some prosy sections full of description and metaphor and all that good stuff, but it's also very dialogue-heavy, and... Um, which is done on purpose for a reason. I know that only because she's written an author's note that I'll read here um, in just a second. But it comes off very, you know, we all love Johnny and Daniel uh, as enemies and friends. And, um, and in both of those situations, there's a lot of bickering and back and forth and insults, um, whether genuinely hurtful or more light and playful. So this sort of rat-a-tat-tat, back-and-forth dialogue is very typical of Johnny and Daniel in the show and in fan fiction, and she does a wonderful job with it in these stories. And so a lot of these stories are very dialogue-heavy in this series. Um, and I think, yeah, the author's note I'll read now, it's from the um, 13th story in the Burt series titled Johnny. So it's the penultimate story in the series. There's only one more after this. So let me just read her author's note here. Okay. 
One thing I believe with all of my heart is that if done right, conversation can be such wonderful foreplay. You'll notice that most other conversations, like the one Daniel has with Amanda, happen offstage because I want the dialogue to be Johnny and Daniel's arena more than anyone else. I make one exception for Robbie since he is some someone important to both of them. So this arena of dialogue is really important to her. And in this case, it's a romance, but in the case of the show, it's not. So I think dialogue uh, was well used in this series. So like I said, even if you're not into La Russo as a pairing, I hope you'll give the episode a try. And I think you'll totally love it. So anyway, without any more babbling from me... Um, here is my interview with Sue Seasit. Um, well, just to kick things off here, you guys know um, this author. She's been in the fandom since the beginning. I call her one of the founders of La Russo, which is the Daniel and Johnny pairing. It's one of the first, her big story we're going to talk about today is one of the first I read. Um, so this is Sue Sees It. Um, and I think you went by another pen name for a while, but um, you explained your pen name to me earlier. Do you want to kind of tell everybody how you got Susie's it? Yes. When I first joined Tumblr, it was like 2012. I'm like really old on there. And back when like the original formatting was happening and all of that and like reblogging was a mess and you had these threads that lasted forever. And so in 2012, I was a big Glee fan. And as a result, my favorite actress and character was Jane Lynch, who plays Sue. <laughs> She's awesome. And she has this horrible non-PC news special <laughs> called Sue Sees It. And at the time, I was role-playing Sue Sylvester in a Facebook group of people and we were having a blast. Um, and so I ended up making that blog as kind of an adjunctive, like a, a, another thing where I could explore her and post things and interact with people. So it goes back all the way to 2012. <laughs> That's awesome. She's so funny. I love that. I didn't know that because for yes. a while I was struggling to pronounce your username. So I'm glad you told me that. I, I thought that was so funny and smart. Um yeah, can you actually just talk a little bit about then, speaking of the OG times of Tumblr, um, how you got into fan fiction or like just early writing memories? Have you always been a writer? Stuff like that. I I guess I've always written. So that's been something that comes easy to me. I feel really grateful that like I don't have writer's block a lot. I, it doesn't mean it hasn't happened, but I just don't. If I set my mind to do it, I usually can. So I have always written. Um Fan fiction, I want to say the first time I read fan fiction, it was called Spec, Speculative Fiction. Oh. It is 1998. Um, I was engaged and my fiance lived far away and I was bored one Friday night and I went looking for something and I don't know how I got where I got, but I ended up on some forum where they were writing Vampire Chronicles slash fanfic. 
Yeah. And I went down this rabbit hole and I never stopped and just was, I, it was amazing. It was like this whole world opened up. Yes. Uh, that was the back when there was dial up and all these things. So people in the, in the house where I was living <laughs> with roommates and they were just like, is everyone on the, comp- why is it so slow? And I was like, I don't know. <laughs> just go to bed. Don't worry about it. But um, yeah, that's when it wasn't even on a fanfiction.net or something like that. It was on some form of forum, kind of like basic forums that we have now. And then in 2000, um, I read it from 98, 99, 2000, but everyone back then had to go underground because her lawyers came after the people who did it. Is so that, that is that Vim? Is that Anne Rice? Is that yeah. okay? Oh man! So you're that in that really fandom. Happen? That really did happen. People talk about it as like lore, but she did. A lot of people disappeared. A lot of the stories were taken down. So if you wanted to go back and reread your favorite thing, I remember I had to email someone personally and say, "Would you mind sending me the file?" But holy that was- shit! Yeah, yeah. That's crazy. Yeah, because I have that's always referenced in if people are trying to talk about the history of fan fiction or stuff about the legality, the Anne Rice stuff is always the big example of like what can yeah. happen or what used to happen. Yeah. It it's so weird to think about it now and how behind she could have been on the forefront of something, but she chose yeah. to be and I think that was a big mistake. It was a yeah. really- well, at least in fan fiction, yeah, it's never a good example when you talk about Anne Rice as an author. You're like, oh, there's this handful of jerk authors that I I don't know. I think there's something that they don't – they have a different philosophy for when you publish a character, uh, the reader's relationship. Like kind of – I think a lot of us think about like once you write a character, you're sort of gifting it to the world and – once right. the reader absorbs it, it's like kind of they take ownership a little bit. And yeah. since we're not making money, it's like what's what's the issue? We're, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and I think she's reversed her stance now. But now, of course, it's like 20 years later and she's begging for more readers. So yeah. <laughs> now it's sad. And <laughs> <laughs> now it's – and I've read some of her recent stuff and it's fine. I mean I enjoyed it, uh, but it was – it's kind of obvious that she lost some – you know, a really strong fan base in some respects along the way. Yeah. Else, she couldn't, you know, she couldn't adapt to that. Yeah. I, you know, I kind of understand a little bit that, you know, and it was all new back then. So she was probably kind of like, what's this? What, what are they doing? And her lawyers were probably like, oh, you got to get on this, you know. That's true. Yeah. And that, that's a very good point. Um, cause that was the beginning of a lot of stuff. So yeah, it had to be a little off-putting and weird for her. Yeah. But she really stuck to her guns for, for a long time. And it's like, yeah. Hey man, once you realize people are making money and they're just playing in your sandbox, like a lot of authors seem to take it as a compliment, which I feel like I would, I mean, I don't know. Yeah. I'm trying to remember if I ever even tried to write. I think I did post a few stories on one of those forums back in like 99 or 2000. And I, I remember not feeling like she was going to come after me because I think I only wrote like one thing. And yeah, I don't think it was, I think it was the people who were becoming quote famous or un, unquote. Yeah. yeah. So, so yeah. you didn't get a cease and desist letter or anything. No, <laughs> I wouldn't even know. I think those sites, whoever was in charge of those sites took them down. And yeah. I'm not even we got any warning i think they just came down uh, 
Yeah, it's uh, such a different world now. With because yeah, you're right. Everything used to be on these separate kind of archive sites and right. Yeah, now we just have Ao3 and Fanfiction.net and you know what yeah. pads out there doing their thing, whatever that is. Well, and then there was a gap, and I don't even remember what went on. I was I was kind of thinking ahead when my next experience was and when I found fanfiction.net. And I want to say I found it in like 2003, 2004. And what was really fun was I was teaching high school at the time. And I just to blow the kids' minds, I was like, type in this character on this site. And they opened it up and they looked at it and they went, oh my God, what is happening? Like <laughs> Lord of the Rings was big back then. And they yep. were like, they're having sex. I was like, all right, let's get off there. <laughs> don't, don't start digging. I just Don't tell your parents. Like, we're, we don't need to do any deep dives. I'm just yeah. asking you to look at the number of stories people have written, you know, about people, these characters that you guys love and you keep talking about in class, like, look at what's out there. So, but I remember that happening. That's cool. I feel like that would have blown my mind as a student if a teacher had opened up that just showed me that because it is I remember when I discovered fan fiction it was like whoa and I don't remember how I got there either but it was really oh it just seemed mind-blowing and I think that's why it's like been my only hobby through like through line since I was like I don't know 13 14 or something I just stuck with it for however old I am now 15 years later something like that anyway yeah and I I'm like you're saying about that, like trying to reconstruct the timeline. I'm not sure what happened after that. I, I'm thinking that for a long time I wasn't active. And then in 2012, like I said, I was doing some stuff with the Glee fandom. And then in 2013, I wrote a couple of things for Hannibal when that came out. So um, that was really fun. But that was at the time, no one was watching that show. And yeah. so. <laughs> It's had this resurgence. Which is kind of like Cobra Kai in the beginning because no one was watching that. But like we would, you know, and what's so funny is I'll often open my Gmail and it'll be like, you got kudos. I'm like, oh, yay, somebody liked my Cobra. No, it's Hannibal because all these new people from the Netflix crowd are like, ooh, we need to look up some Lecter smut or something. So... I guess that they're finding it now, five years later, which is a good argument for just like never taking stuff down, I guess. I know. I think, yeah, that's crazy. And that's, I, I can't think of examples, but I know that happens in shows. And yeah, just recently, Narcissa Black on AO3 was talking about Hannibal or on Tumblr and she had some uh, GIFs. So then my sister started watching it. She's like, you got to watch this show. So mm-hmm. I'm only like eight episodes in, but- I was, I couldn't believe it was on NBC and uh, the quality of what they were doing in 2013 on NBC. You're like, what? This feels oh, like yeah. HBO or something. It used to come on after The Office of all things. <laughs> Can you even imagine like the juxtaposition of The Office? <laughs> and like as you're walking The Office, like there's a little Hannibal tag running at the bottom. <laughs> Stay tuned for Hannibal. Like it was it was mind blowing. It was absolutely mind blowing. Yeah, it did. doesn't seem to fit in with what they were yeah. doing. And I don't know how Brian Fuller, the producer or the creator, got them to. Although season one is fairly conservative yeah. compared to the later stuff. It it will get, it becomes an acid trip, truly an acid trip. So by that point, you're like, I don't know how you guys are on there. But um, yeah, I remember the very first days that show premiered. And like, I remember all of us 
even guys, girls, just people that I knew were like, I was in grad school at the time. And, and we were like, did you understand him? Like, was it hard for you to understand him? And I remember a friend of mine going, yeah, I had to really lean in. I, that's my only complaint is that it was really hard for a lot of us to follow Mads Mickelson's accent. Yeah. So I remember all those conversations and yeah. Yeah. And it's such a different experience watching it weekly on a network and having to yes. wait a week. Yes. Because now you just, it. now you can put on subtitles and you can binge it. and Exactly. Now you, yeah. You, and they were even, the network was even messing up because they were, this was when we, they first started using participation social network strategies to try to keep you engrossed in the oh. show. And so they were doing, you know, they were trying to tweet. In fact, I think Brian Fuller responded to a tweet of mine because he had like 20 fans at first. Um, <laughs> so it was really easy, which is kind of why I think the three guys on Cobra Kai respond kind of quickly because it's still a smaller niche crowd, which yeah. I think will change soon. But he responded. I remember asking him a question about Jack. Is Jack going to manipulate Will like he does in the book? And he was like, oh, yes, that's a big theme. And they were tweeting all these pictures of like, Will, you know, the actor who plays Will with his dogs, the dogs that he was in the scene with. Uh. It was precious. But one time they were trying to quote the actors. And when they would quote Mads's lines, whoever was in charge of the NBC Hannibal Twitter would get them slightly wrong. And oh, I was shit. like, okay, I feel better that this little social media intern is not getting it. In oh, man. Anytime you have like a big corporation trying to do something cool, like they always like fuck it up. Like, <laughs> Yes, yes. I was like, wait, now you're throwing us off. That changes the entire meaning of that statement. <laughs> yeah, that's not right. But they were trying. It was early. It was, you know, the, the hashtag for the TV show and all that was like just a year old and people were doing the best they could to get you all to get you to start conversations the way that they wanted you to start conversations. Yeah. So, yeah. That's cool. Well, yeah, it will be a change when, I mean, I hope, I sort of hope and both fear that once hopefully Cobra Kai gets more viewers that things are going to change. But it is nice. If it does feel now like kind of a nice little small town, and we all know the mayors, <laughs> the victory, right. you know, right? And there is something to be said for that. Yeah, I kind of like that actually. <laughs> yeah, but it'll be cool. I mean, I think everybody in fan fiction's like, we just we just want new stuff, you know. We want new writers and new material, and yeah, yeah, it's yeah. getting a little weird. Yeah, to have any information at all about yeah. It's getting a little strange and hard to be patient. Yeah, I know. We've been waiting so long for season three, but you got to have faith. Got to have faith in uh, the big three and what, what do we call it? The Church of Shieldwits, I think, was a some, it was like a joke on Twitter. Like, I don't the know. The Church of what? The Church of the, uh, Shieldwits. Like, they mashed oh. all the names together. Oh, my God. And it was I like, in, in TB3, we trust, I think. It started on Cobra Kai Companion's Facebook page or something. But okay. anyway, we're trying to have faith in the leaders of our little cult here. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, um, anyway, yeah, I guess, do you remember how you got into the Cobra Kai fan fiction or what it was like? Because you posted the first of the series in May of uh, 2018, I think, which is right about when the show came out, right? Season one. Yes. And I think what I did was, I think I watched season one multiple times and I tried to get as many people as could to watch it with me. I called yeah. my best friends and I begged them to try, just do it, please. They're short. You know, it's going to only take you two and a half hours. 
And um, they were really impressed and I loved it, but I was like, you know, they went back to their lives and I still wanted to see it again and again. Yeah. So I got, I, I did what I always do, which is I get on Tumblr, which I hadn't been on in a while. And I did a search. I just typed in Cobra Kai and I found really very little. And I just, I think I wrote something out to the universe. I said, is anybody watching this? And like, you know, and, and then some people kind of came forward and said, yeah, I am. And then somebody, I did stumble on a post where someone said, has anyone decided what the ship name is going to be for Johnny and Daniel? <laughs> and I went, oh, and so I remember them debating what, what the name would be. I don't nice. remember all the choices, but I remember that going on and, and thinking, okay, I, I'm not alone in this. There's like three people <laughs> that I can yeah. talk to. Um, and so then I guess I started writing, not because of those three people, because I didn't know them yet. And there were only three of them. Um, I, I started writing because I was reading other fan fiction and another fandom. And my favorite writer had left a work in progress abandoned. And like, I was so sad that she abandoned it. And I would just complain. And then finally, I looked at myself and said, if, if you really, why don't you write the thing that you can't read? You know, why don't you do something why don't you give back? Awesome. <laughs> so that was the motivation. It was more because my favorite writer didn't write. And I was like, I need to, I need to fill this hole with something. That's actually how that happened. That's awesome. Do you remember how many stories were on uh, the archive at that point? Did you go right no, to AO3 no. or? Yeah. Probably very few, but I, I, I don't know. I can't say that. I, I mean, I would guess like less than 10 because when I go back and look at the stories from 2018, it's like, maybe I'm usually looking through a La Russo filter, but it seems like there's a right. couple by this author named, uh, I think it's BB3 or something. And then there's just like the Bird series starts and it's like right there at the beginning, which is cool. Yeah. I I don't even remember the, the circumstances of May uh, in terms of the archives. So that's really interesting. I mean, yeah, this is going to sound really ridiculous, but I never thought of doing a year, a search and looking at the year. I think that's interesting that you did that. Cause I, I never would have thought of that. Yeah. I think I was so desperate for good material of, especially of that ship that I was trying to read everything. And so I found your series pretty early on and I read through it and I was, I loved it. It's such a great, and we'll just, you know, talk about it all hour, but, um, it's just, it was just, it, to me, it set the bar so high for that, uh, that pairing. And it was just such a vivid, well thought out story that, um, and then I, I was almost, uh, it sounds bad, but I was almost disappointed, like with some of the other stuff at that time where I was like, Oh, like there needs to be, I think, especially of that length, like, even though the individual stories are like 2000 words all together, it's a really long, um, large scale project. And so that was actually one of the reasons I was like, I want to write my first long story. Cause I don't know what my longest story before that in other fandoms had been, but I was like, I want to write like a hundred thousand word fic, you know, because I feel like we need this. And I felt like Bert was really the only, the Bert series was really the only thing in that category at that point. So, so you're an inspiration. <laughs> See, that's what's funny is that the work in progress that I read was an inspiration to me. And the fact that she stopped actually, and she has come back and started writing again, but it's like, I think that it, that's a really cool thing about the community of fan fiction is sometimes the best ideas come out of one person stopping and then yeah. another, another person picking it up for something else. And then somebody else picks it up and kind of the inspiration goes down the chain or something. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. And I feel like just rereading uh, this series, there's just little moments where, and I probably just need to write it all out in a comment for you, but um, there's just all these parts that I've sort of circled where I was like, ooh, I think that made it, that sort of little snippet of something I feel like inspired something from one of my stories here, or this bit kind of sounds like something I put in here. So I feel like uh, it's a really dense, well-realized story that was, I don't know, it just kind of stuck with me so that when I was writing my stuff, I feel like, ah, oh, this came from Bert. I don't know. And I, you know, it's funny because I was looking back at it yesterday because I realized it had been two years. So I wasn't positive. I didn't remember parts of it. So I was reading over it and there was, there are a couple of lines in it that are truly stolen from other fan fiction writers. I always yeah. tried to credit that. You know, I would try to say very clearly that line comes from this. If you want to read the original story, go to this link. Yeah. But I was like, I kind of looked back at that and thought, mm, was that a good idea? I don't know. You know, it was, but I think we all like share the same DNA, which is really yeah. cool. even from fandom to fandom. Cause like I said, my people I was reading weren't in Cobra Kai, but their stories, like I, it was mostly the Harry Potter fandom. Yes. A lot of the stuff, especially like Harry Drago was so similar to oh, yeah. John and um, Johnny and Daniel. So it was like, I built a lot on the stories about those two, even as kids kind of translated to those adults in that story. Yes. There's actually, I, that just reminded me because I was also into Dreary. Actually, right, I had like come back to it right before I got into Cobra Kai. So a lot of the stories were fresh in my mind. So uh, a one shot I just did, Landslide, has a line about, um, it's like a metaphor, like gears coming together. It's like a sort of a perfect match for two people. And th that is very similar to a line I read in a Harry Draco story. And actually, I need to find that and credit it because um, I think depending on how close it is, it's good to credit. If it's, you know, if it's pretty close or some of the wording, I don't know. I I totally get that feeling of feeling a little guilty about it because, I don't know, sometimes it's hard to remember whether you've been inspired by something or whether that came from you. And and I do kind of like that. Like you said, it's like a it's like an evolving DNA mm -hmm. within a canon. And like, you know, your story inspired my story and hopefully my story would inspire some other people. So it is neat to see. And that's when you get this like group head canon of like one instance I remember was uh, I could find it here. And we'll kind of go through the stories, I think, one by one, but um, unless that would take too long. But um, there's a line, I think, either in one of the last two stories in the series uh, titled Johnny or it might have been in Daniel, but Daniel's talking about he didn't have, I think they're sitting on the beach. I think it's in Johnny. They're sitting on Topanga Beach where they come back to at the end. And Daniel says something about, I didn't have, I don't have many guy friends. You probably figured that out. And it's like this mm -hmm. look at Daniel kind of as a lonely person. And I feel like I that really resonated with me. And I don't know if I had that sense of Daniel before I read that or after, but I feel like that's a really common thing where Daniel's kind of built this facade as a person. And that's a huge theme in here, I think. Um, but he doesn't connect yeah. with people well. And so Johnny's, the relationship with Johnny's important because he's connecting with Johnny on like every level. And so it's sort of his first like real friend and with a male in a line. He seems to make friends with women and then get into relationships with them. Yeah. You know, like Allie and Kumiko and Jessica and Amanda. Yeah. Yeah, that's, I would say, the hardest part about him to to enjoy, I guess, to write. I 
but I do find the part about struggling for the male friendships to be interesting. And I do think they showed that a lot in season one, that even when he did form connections, they weren't the best kind when he was, I guess, quote, close to his cousin. I wouldn't call it close, yeah. but when they were working together and then Anoush really wanted the friendship. You start to see that. And he ditched him. I mean, over time through season two, you see that yeah. he doesn't care enough to nurture that relationship and then that male friend goes off and works for Tom Cole. So it's like even when he does have that glimmer of chance with a with another male who's really probably I think he asked Anush at one point, you know, do you want to do karate with me? Yeah. And Anush is like, well, no, that's not my thing or whatever. But it it's really sad that even the opportunities he had, he just kind of dismissed them, I guess. I mean, not, not that he needed to be really close with Louis. I'm yeah. Pretty sure wouldn't have been a healthy thing, but, <laughs> but I mean, it's funny how the two of them were kind of like his goons and like, they were, they were the bullies at first, you know, to yeah. John. And then it kind of flipped and Daniel realized, you know, the problems that went on there, especially with the yeah. burning car and all that stuff. Yeah. I think it's like, also like, obviously with that, there's like a power imbalance of him being their boss and so they're not quite yeah. on his level. And so Johnny is like one of the first people yeah. that's really on his level as far as like they do this karate thing. I mean, they're they're so similar in so many ways and they have this past and um, yeah. 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 Yeah, you're absolutely right. If you're working for someone, that's not really a friendship that can be organic in a true sense. So yeah, yeah. that's absolutely true. Yeah. And he, he kind of strikes a friendship with Robbie, but, you know, again, it's like a mentor relationship, which yeah. is really great, but it's not the same as having a buddy or a friend. Exactly. Yeah. 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 And I think that's, to me, the part that kept me invested in that show was what they did with that twist with Robbie. Yeah. Because I thought that was brilliant. I never, I, how they figured out how to maneuver the pieces so that that was just the most brilliant idea. And I think yeah. that's why I bragged about the show so much to everybody was, I was like, you don't understand. It's like, they're raising a kid together and they don't even know it. And, oh, wow. <laughs> and that probably comes from my excitement from Hannibal because that was a very similar pro plot premise. And it goes all the way back to the DNA with Anne Rice, which was the same thing. Like the a pseudo family. Shared a, parent, a parenting responsibility with the brunette. And that's what kept him hooked to him. Yeah. And it, I mean, that seems to be a trope that goes all the way through a lot of these pop culture stories. Yeah. I don't know what's so powerful about it, but it's definitely – so compelling. Yeah. And how they managed to pull it off the way they did that he ended up at the dealership and he did it first to spite his dad. And then that, that weird, <laughs> he drank some weird Kool-Aid and something happened. And it was, it was kind of, that was neat. I, I think thought. it's like Daniel taking a genuine interest in Robbie where like none of the adults in Robbie's life were ever there for him. And, uh, you know, sh you know, Shannon, they, he obviously loves his mother, but she's like, lets him down in so many ways. And, yeah. um, yeah, just like Daniel actually being there for him and being unaware of the rivalry, which adds tension, obviously. But yeah, I think that's what pulls Robbie in. And you're right. It's like so well-written and constructed. Like it doesn't come off as, um, like they're trying to shoehorn something in or forced. It's just like, wow, the story really unfolded. In such a natural way, and it works so well. Yeah, because it could have been complete and total cheese, and they yeah. did. They did indulge in that. They they kind of 
learn to laugh at themselves, which I think is a great thing for those writers to do. But I, I also think they've managed to somehow make a Generation Z kid have a look of awe on his face when he saw the hidden curriculum in the moves. And that's when I was really impressed because I thought they actually owned that. They really did a good job with the fact that this really jaded kid who honestly, my first impression of him would be that he would laugh at someone like Daniel LaRusso and find him completely repellent. Um, And I think that he still probably felt that way for a while uh, because it was a joke to go work for him. It wasn't serious. Yes. But um, yeah, I thought that was fascinating. So like my first story actually, I don't, that's so weird to think about it because I haven't gone back and looked at it. But the very first thing I wrote was actually about Daniel and Robbie because it was, I just found that relationship fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, again, we keep saying the same but different. But yeah, because it is different from Miguel and uh, and Johnny, which is way more of a, well, I don't know. I don't know how different or similar they both are between, I mean, there's a ton of parallels between Miguel and Johnny to Daniel and Miyagi. I guess because Robbie kind of knows that there's this big secret he's hiding and you know, he doesn't want to ruin it. And there's nothing like that with Miguel and Johnny. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think in season two, some of the magic between Daniel and the, well, I mean, I think in season two, a lot of the magic leaves to be perfectly honest. Um, And I, which is why for a long time, I didn't even rewatch it or keep my subscription because I wasn't that happy with that season. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I think some of those relationships fail. Some of the stuff that was driving the success of the show gets eclipsed by number one, Crease, which I can't, I cannot stand the insertion of him. I know a lot of people will attack me for saying that, but I can't stand that. And number two, I did almost didn't like that Miyagi Do got so big. Yeah. Even though I'm glad he, he had students, I just feel like. Something about that still doesn't seem genuine. And the fact that they're there and they're not paying. And I, I don't know, something about that little community still seems really off to me. So I think it is. I think it is. And I think that's, we'll hopefully see that in season three. Because I think with Miyagi, it was always a father to son thing. Um, right. It and wasn't then, a school, really. Yeah. It was, can you help me because I may be killed by these guys? Yeah. Like there was a motive that wasn't about just hanging out and learning moves. Yeah. And now that he's starting the school and he, he's, I think he has trouble finding his purpose and what a teacher is really supposed to do mm-hmm. in this situation. And I, that's why I think Dimitri is fascinating, but that's a yeah. whole yeah. yeah. We'll get into your newer stuff with Dimitri and uh, Eli, because I do want to talk about that. Um Gosh, I'm just trying to think of where to start with uh, digging more into the Burt series. Um, did you did you start it out just as a one shot, or did you know it was going to be a series? Yeah, it was a one shot. It was absolutely a one shot. Yeah, and I, I think I wrote the second chapter because I couldn't sleep one night. Yeah, that was really the only impetus. Yeah, and then it became like a, a ten headed monster or something. What do you remember? Like when that started, did you intend Burt Part 2 to just be like a two-shot at that point? Or were you already thinking like, oh, this isn't going to let go of my imagination? Because it really does. It's not just like a series of one-shots. It does develop a plot uh, and it really does it beautifully. So at some point, I feel like you committed to a longer story. Yeah. And I don't think it was in either Part 1 or Part 2. I think somewhere in the Aisha chapter, I knew that I kind of wanted to see it through a little more. Yeah. 
but before that it was simply just one shot that was and then they had a sequel because the sequel was short and easy to do yeah um, but yeah it and for me that's often just i know people write differently i I don't have big architectural plans on, in notebooks and I, and that's probably a flaw that I have to work on. But like, I, I don't sit around and chart and draw pictures of where people are headed in their arcs in advance of starting. Usually we start and whatever the, and when the characters are being put on the page and you're playing with them and the dialogue comes to life, that's when I know what's going to happen. But I, before that, I often don't know. Um, which for some people probably is a bit of a cheat, but it just is how it works. Yeah. Well, brain. I think it's, I think it comes off really, uh, organically. So I think it ended up working out for you well. Cause I, cause I feel like sometimes we have a tendency to plot out stuff and then it just always, for me, at least it always comes out different on the page and you can kind of like write yourself into some corners or, it, or it comes out maybe a little clumsy, and then you just have to, I don't know. I just felt like it, it, uh, feels organic. Thank you. Because honestly, like I, two of the people that I read in pop culture a lot are Stephen King and JK Rowling. And like I, JK Rowling is somebody who does keep those notebooks. Yeah. Stephen King doesn't, he improvises and I'm, I'm not going to lie. I can tell when he does. Yeah. Um, not that I'm comparing myself to them. I'm just saying that. Oh yeah, no. In terms of the two different approaches, I do see where J.K. Rowling making those no, the, those copious notes. I see where her work pays off more. Um, so, but for me, fan fiction is just for fun, and so I'm not. If it were a book contract with somebody else, I would probably try to be more disciplined. But it's not. It's fun. So, yeah. Yeah. And I think that sometimes it can be a real distraction from actually sitting down and do the work. Like you're like, well, I have to draw out the house plan so that I know where the bathroom's at. You know, it's like, yeah, I can't do that. <laughs> yeah. it, I'm not good at that at all. Yeah. No. I sort of used to do that. But then I was like, you're just procrastinating actually writing at that point. You know, I think so. that's exactly what I think. I absolutely think that. And I know that's not what people like Rawling are doing, but I, I do think amateur writers can absolutely sit around and obsess about where the fern's yes. going to plant it. You know, if it ends up being a mistake, it's a mistake. You know, it's okay. That's why there are revisions. It's, you know, we're all, we're all here for you. Go ahead and post it anyway, even if the fern is in the damn wrong spot. Who oh, cares? yeah. You know, um, I know it's vulnerable and scary, but I would just encourage everybody to forget the fern and just write your stuff. Yeah, totally. I feel like we talk a lot about there's a place in the Discord, I can't remember what it's called, but it's like the work in progress room or something and people ask questions and and it's good to ask questions, but I feel like a lot sure. of times the answer is just try it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> just yeah. go try it, go for it, see what happens. Like don't worry about what this character you know, it's yeah. good you need to get into their heads to make decisions that make sense, but sometimes you don't know until you try it. Well, and it's like for me it also has a lot to do with my day job because in my day job, I am required to publish several times a year or I don't keep my job. So it's like publish or perish. And like when I do that work, it has to be so well researched and so regimented that I don't want to use fan fiction to do the same type of thing. In fact, like I think I wrote the Burt series while I was writing a book that was under contract in academia which is weird that I would do those things at once, but actually for some reason it, it really helps the two feet off each other. 
But yeah, I, after doing research on the book all day, the last thing I want to do at night is look up what kind of plants Daniel has in his dance. <laughs> I think I, I've Googled that. that. Now, I went back and looked at Bert and I did say to myself, wow, you really, that actually shows that you watch this stuff more currently, which I realized I'm not disciplined like that anymore because I, I tried to write about, when I wrote about Eli and Dimitri, I'll admit I didn't do the research and I do see a difference. I do. But at the same time, it's still fun. And yeah. I, would still, I would still argue that people need to have fun with this. Like, yeah. I like, I like that in, um, I think the Burt series, you get a pretty vivid picture of the valley and uh, I like that you put Topanga Beach in there. I don't know. There's just some, I feel like some, some places that you can hit. Uh, and to me, that's when research is fun. Like that ended up organically in there because I was having fun already. Anytime I, I get obsessed with a new story or whatever, I, I tend to obsess about place. And so I would go on yeah. Tumblr and look up, I would look up photographs of the places where they filmed. And then I would look up photographs of the beaches and I would look up photographs of, families just kayaking down at the beach and I get really obsessed about that. So I think that worked well, but that was again, organic for fun. I didn't reblog that stuff because I was like, Oh no, someone's going to say you wrote the wrong beach. You know, it was, <laughs> I was actually interested, which I think is the best way to do it when it really, you really do care about place or the setting because California is beautiful. Oh, Why yeah. Not yeah. It's like this uh, mythical I mean, the valley, even saying the valley, it's like this mythical place. And the, even the name Topanga Beach, I just loved that. Like, it sounds way better than like Leo Carrillo State Park or wherever it was actually filmed. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I, it makes it all seem really magical. And I mean, that's what, you know, his mother says that. Like, this is the Garden of Eden. Yes. Which is, you know, I'm kind of a laughable line. But now you kind of step back and go, wow, in a way he did end up in a kind of garden of sorts, like with his, with Mr. Miyagi making trees, you know what I mean? Like, yes. So it was like that garden really did come to life in some ways, but yeah, I think that is beautiful place. And I mean, I think someone recently, I want to say Bitka posted like something like a shot of the Pacific coast highway. Yeah. She's like for research. And I, I love what I wrote under, I was like, that place is beautiful. Like, that's awesome. So like, I, I do think looking at place can just be fun. So you can plan your next trip. If anything else. I can't remember if it's the first or the second. I think it's the first time they go to Topanga beach, which is in the story Topanga. And they're Daniel standing in the water with his shoes in his hands. And he says something like, I can't believe I live here. Right. Um, and it just like it emphasizes that Daniel's an outsider, and even though he's been there for thirty years, he's still like this Jersey boy, kind of in awe of this unreal place. And well, what's interesting that you that you bring that up because when I was looking back at it last yesterday, I I do think, and I've said this before to different people, but like I do think the Karate Kid in that whole universe is dealing a lot with money. Oh yeah, class and money and. We yeah. act like it doesn't matter. And honestly, it does. I mean, it it just does. Yeah. It's, it's an interesting cast system. Like, it's different from sort of a – I mean, there's probably lots at play. But it's like not like a religious caste system like maybe in India. It's all about the religion of the dollar and who's successful and gets to be at the top. And, and there's like race in there too. Yeah. But it's really more about economy yeah. and class and the Reseda – kids and the Encino kids and yeah and it's such a great metaphor because Encino is literally up on a hill and Reseda's down exactly. 
it's always that way ever since the beginning of American stories like the city on the hill is where you're closest to God but guess what you're also away from disease and away from the slums mm -hmm. and you're setting yourself apart and so when he's standing on the beach like that yeah it was like there's a, there is a little foreshadowing to you know he's like I can't believe I'm part of this in crowd basically saying that at the beach kind of yeah like, Autistical way, actually, but like part of that is foreshadowing for there being something underneath all of it that isn't exactly usually behind closed doors. Rich societies, well, you know, affluent people aren't always living the happiest lives for whatever. So yeah, and that's great because they touch on that, especially in Cobra Kai when Johnny has the line, "Just because it's a nice house doesn't mean nice things happen." Yes. Yeah. So, and I feel like we forget that Johnny sometimes comes from money for most of his childhood exactly. anyway. Yeah. He's made the opposite trip that Daniel has, you know, kind of downhill instead of uphill. And it was, you know, it really shows like on a small level and on a like a micro and a macro level, this idea of like with with Hawk, that whole idea of flip the script is such a small detail when he says it. But really that that line is that's the philosophy behind every single thing that's happening in the yeah. entire story, which is okay. Daniel was poor and they laughed at him and then he became rich and then Johnny was rich. And now he's in an apartment with a bunch of beer cans yeah. and like, like everything is flipping. Um, and oh, I think that's, so good. that's just really neat to see. Cause it could have been done in a, like I said, in a very cheesy way, but I don't think, I think they they pulled it off really well. And the cheesy parts, to me, they at least expanded on and tried to laugh at themselves about. Like, Yeah, the show works so well. It stands so well after rewatching. And it's just, it kind of unfolds effortlessly. But yeah, then we have conversations like this where you're like, fuck, that was good. And wow, that was awesome. And just really smart. But I feel like, um, I don't know, just what you talked about with uh, kind of affluent people and putting a, I don't know, studying that in this story, I thought was really smart. And that's really, it seems like that's where the real plot starts. Um, maybe yeah. even more in, once you get to the eighth story, I mean, some stuff starts to happen before that, but for sure, by the time you get to Encino, which is the, uh, the party that Johnny goes to, uh, and Daniel and Amanda are there and it's, oh, it's Aisha's parents hosting. And you have that great, it's like, I feel like I'm really jumping ahead. I don't know if we want to. No, 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 I mean, fun. people have read the series if they're listening to this, hopefully. So well, obviously. We, we're talking enough about the show, too, that it, you know, you can kind of have fun either way. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I mean, if you haven't read the story up to this point, you should. I mean, um, we're going to talk about plot points, but, you know, we'll try not to spoil the whole thing. But I guess there might be a lot spoiled. But essentially, the story starts in the parking lot uh, right after the tournament, so post-season one. So we're in May of 2018. And uh, the, this kind of affair starts pretty quickly, or the beginnings of one, throughout Burt 1 and 2. And it's fun because Burt 2 starts, it is really just the second half of the same story. It feels like Karate Kid Part 2 starting in the parking lot right after Karate Kid Part 1. I just oh, thought right. that was, Yeah. Yeah. I love how sometimes stuff like that happens. That's nice. And like, maybe you didn't intend that, but I'm like, wow, that's so clever of you. Sue sees it. It's awesome though. And you don't have to admit that people can just think that. Oh yeah. It's like, oh, yeah, she's, form, form and con she's mirroring the structure of the show. Yes. That's exactly. Yeah. Well, but it's on, to, on a note, quick note of structure. Like 
they're basically episodes like the TV show. It feels like a serialized season. I mean, actually, yeah. noticing that uh, I think there's a timestamp somewhere in Johnny, uh, the the chapter Johnny, where it mentions them being in October. So you realize they've gone from May to October of 2018. So it is really an alternate season, too. Yeah. Yeah, because they go to the board meeting about the next All Valley. Yep. And they're starting to plan for the next year. Yeah. It moves. Yeah. Yeah. And it's great pacing, by the way. You just you just do a great job with that. It, it's They're fun to read. They're like 2,000 word stories in this series. Um, and they're, they all sort of like touch on a deeper themes. Like, I mean, we could talk a whole thing about like, control and choice and it seems like a lot of the internal drama is happening around daniel i guess i mentioned in encino real fast i was just gonna say well fuck, i don't know i'm just now i'm just jumping around like oh what do we what do we talk about now no, but like you're making me think of you know and this was something i thought of last night and it's exactly where you're in the exact spot where i thought of this like in encino where you know this is what i hate about the pandemic is is this lack of conversation i'm not saying i don't have conversations i do but i don't have as many and mm-hmm. i don't meet people the way i used to before all this happened yeah and one of the things that was happening to me while i was writing these little one shots and not really taking it very seriously is i went on a date with a guy who already had a partner and he was dating and he and i over i i mean i just it was just so much fun this is going to sound so manipulative. I don't mean it this way, but I saw his profile on a dating website and I thought, this is really interesting that he's admitting up front, you know, I have a partner, but I do want to get to know more people and that my partner knows that. Yeah. And I I remember thinking, wow, I really want to meet this person. And it wasn't so much a manipulating thing as a curiosity that I wanted to sit down and pick their brain about what that was like. So here we are having dinner in this Mexican restaurant and, you know, it was the best conversation ever. I mean, we didn't end up having any kind of future, you know, we, it fizzled out, but like when the first meal was amazing. Cause I was like, so what do you do with this? And what do you do when this happens? And he was generous enough to listen cool. and be enough not to be offended. Yeah. And he was talking about the black ring, which he had on. And that's why there's such a good plot in Bert, not because of my talent, but because in 2018, I could go out to dinner with a stranger, sit across from them and have these conversations. Whereas now we can't do that, you know? And I, I feel like I have this, like, that's why I struggle to write a lot right now is there aren't real life experiences that I can plug into. Like, especially with like the Eli and Dimitri stuff, the only thing I can plug into that is music. Cause the only thing that's truly happened to me since the pandemic is falling in love with music. But that's not as good as going and meeting a stranger, a real human, and having a real conversation, and then being able to do something creative with it. That's awesome. Because the best stuff, and I feel like it's good advice for writers, because a lot of us are like, um, what am I trying to say? Introverts. And, you know, we like staying indoors and reading and watching TV. And that works up to an extent. But at some point, I feel like my most powerful literary moments come from experiences I had in my 20s when I was going out to the bars and making right. uh, romantic mistakes. Yeah, <laughs> you yeah. Know? And I'm scared to death. I mean, I remember seeing this, you know, he and I just went on a couple of dates and I remember how scared I wanted to vomit before I went. But I remember yeah. when I came home that night thinking, I love doing things that scare me, especially when it comes to meeting people and how that part of our lives right now is really jeopardized. <sighs> I mean, we can have digital relationships and I'm so grateful to have reconnected with some of mine, but 
it's still not enough. We've got to yeah. have something else. We've got to scare ourselves a little bit each day or there, there's not going to be a plot. There's just going to be a bunch of ruminating. I don't know what it is about. I mean, it's as simple as it just being, it's just genuine, but like, because if you're trying to write about something you don't understand or that's not coming from a genuine place, it does. It just feels kind of like flat and ruminating and you don't, you never really go anywhere. So, cause you got to like be reaching out toward like a nugget of something, like a real sentiment. Yeah. It's always better when it comes from experience. I think so too. Or, and even if it doesn't end up being in your writing, just having experiences and not just being indoors. And I think this year has kind of created a challenge for that. Yeah, for everybody, and especially I think like, you know, high school seniors graduating and college kids is like, fuck, you guys should be out there like getting fucked up, like <laughs> and making mistakes and sleeping with people that you shouldn't. Yeah, because you're absolutely right. It's, I mean, people going through those major milestones are going through something much worse than yeah. me. It's absolutely true. And I don't, I'm kudos to them. I'm going to meet some of them next week, the people who never actually graduated. And I hope they're not too traumatized. It's going to be interesting seeing how long this kind of gets drawn out or if we can maybe, you know, with masks and stuff, we can get to a new normal. I don't know. It's just really uncertain. It's like, are we going to have to wait till the vaccine or is it going to run through enough of the population where you get a herd of me? I mean, I don't know. We don't, and I don't really want to talk about the virus, but it is, it's definitely changing everything. And in some ways, you know, online connection is great, but you're right. I mean, it's just like, it's not good to have everybody inside and yeah, by themselves. Yeah. And I think that I would never have learned what I learned about polyamory had I not taken a risk to meet someone new. And I think, I don't know. I just think that right now, not to keep dwelling on the bad, but like, I think one of the hardest things right now is it's really hard to take risks. Yeah, totally. And, um, that's good in a way. Like we want that. We want people to stay safe, but part of like growing as a person is taking some kind of chance and putting yourself out there, but we can't really do that. Like, I think you were like, um, cause I mean, I live, I'm, I'm single and I live alone. And like, you were like, what day works for you? Like, are you, okay? can you do weekends? I'm like, <laughs> I, I can do weekends anytime. It's me in the dog. <laughs> I mean, you know, because it's, there isn't as much that's that you can really do. I have close friends that I have dinner with once in a while, but yeah. we, we try to follow the rules, you know? Yeah, it sucks. Yeah, your days become kind of unstructured and your weeks become unstructured. And um, yeah, it's not good. It's weird. I want to get back to normal. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, yeah, in that chapter, I was just going to, um, Encino is one, there's so many, so much good stuff in the whole thing. And you're going to hear some noise because I have my, printed out i have my script in front of me uh which is the printed out series but basically yeah johnny finds out that daniel and amanda participate in this kind of swingers lifestyle kind of behind this closed door and it's something that all the people in that upper echelon seem to be aisha's parents and um people in that upper class are all at this party and johnny hears something about black rings and miguel googles it and that's how johnny finds out and so Johnny obviously uh, reacts not very well to this because he and Daniel have been kind of circling around this affair. And Daniel says, we need to go somewhere so I can explain. And then you have this kind of flashback retrospective section in Daniel's head. And it's great because it's this picture of Daniel we don't get that often where he's like halfway up the ladder, so to speak. Like he's not the poor kid we remember, but he's not quite the successful yeah. And I thought that was really unique, just seeing him kind of, you realize that how, how hard Daniel's had to work to get where he is. And at some point he has 
a mortgage and a baby and a fledgling dealership that's not where it needs to be and you have startup expenses and stuff like that. So he's trying to survive and keep things together. In the in the conception of that too was this idea that he might have spent too much on Mr. Miyagi's funeral. Like yeah. he didn't have the money, but he did it anyway. And like if you look at that tombstone even in the show, it's it's a nice one. You know, it and I'm wondering if when that happened, how that affected his family. I remember thinking about that. And that he might have felt really guilty and felt like he needed to somehow help the situation along. Because yeah. he had the money probably for one of those kids' colleges and thrown it toward that funeral. Or toward the, even just the coffin, would, which would put anyone in back 10000 20000 Oh, my gosh. Yeah, and I like that he you mentioned that he does he didn't really tell Amanda probably how much that would cost or, or maybe that was – he spent more than maybe he told her he was going to. And that contributes yeah. to this just like Daniel continuing to build this uh, version of himself that's not a, a real version of himself. Like he's kind of hiding behind a bunch of these walls and stuff. Um, yeah. And what I think that what was interesting to me is like the show flips the script in a certain way so that we care about Johnny and, and that's the brilliance of the show. But then I also wanted to find a way to flip the script so that Daniel wasn't always the guy picking up the old lady's groceries off the floor. It just was too, to me, I thought, and I think that's why that little confrontation where Johnny just smiles when he hears the story and he says, you're a whore. Yeah. You know, that moment to me is really important because finally Johnny has agency. Yes. He's like, this is one thing I have not done. Like, you, yes. can, you know, you can tell me a million times, you know, Daniel likes to remind him that he's pushed him off a cliff, but he's like, you can keep saying that, but I know for a fact that you're doing this, this, and this with your family and with other people. And so it gave him this weird power, which I, yeah. I, he doesn't abuse it, but at first he has that tendency to abuse it. Yeah, he's finally got something to hold over Daniel's head where Daniel, – Yeah. And it, uh, Robbie plays into that, like the jealousy yeah. over Daniel raising Robbie. Yeah, yeah. it's a great moment. Uh, and Daniel – you know, it's like he does – obviously he doesn't react well to D- Johnny calling him that. But you can tell the way that he reacts, he's been – there's probably some feelings inside where he feels like that too. Like he's, yeah. he's not proud of this lifestyle either. But he's done it. He's like sold a little bit of his soul to make nice with these people. Because there's a scene where Daniel and Amanda first go to the swingers party. Daniel's totally um, totally unaware of what this is. And Amanda picks up on it pretty quick. And she grabs him in the bathroom. And she's like, uh, don't freak out. But here's what's going on. And he wants to leave. And she's the one who says, okay, maybe we should stay. Because she knows that in order to be a part of this uh, set of people who are country club people, and those are the people that are going to buy luxury cars and make the yeah. dealership successful. And so she kind of talks them into it. And there's also, I just want to mention, there's a great moment where Daniel gets talked into it, which is another thing with this sort of like control thing that you touch on a lot. Yeah. Daniel kind of n- sacri- letting go of some control. He's going to do it because he has to do it. But he, there's a line about him taking a swig of vodka. I'm just going to read it because I want to read it. She says, we both have colorful colorful pasts anyways, Amanda teased. So she's referring to maybe we should just do this because it's not that big a deal anyway. And Daniel says, yours is much more colorful than mine, Daniel muttered, feeling trapped. Then he wanted to take it back. Perhaps out of guilt for that comment or guilt over spending his kid's college tuition on a cemetery plot he couldn't afford or out of lingering grief for his teacher, 
he let his wife pull him out of the bathroom and into the group. He reached for the vodka before things got started. He hated the taste, but he found that if the martini was extra cold, he could endure it. So I love that because it pulls from canon. Daniel drinks these martinis, but now you get this sense that it's an acquired taste and he's had to get used to it. But now, but now he drinks them all the time, so it's like he's so far away from his original self that it's a little bit sad now to think about him drinking these martinis all the time. I just thought that was great. That whole thing in season two, they actually play with that a little. Like, doesn't I feel like Daniel laughs at everything Johnny orders at the restaurant, which is really yeah. classist and gross. I mean, I know they're not oh, friends, yeah. but like that was weird. You know, I I don't know, and I think that kind of digs into it too. Oh, yeah, he's, yeah, definitely. I think the reason why a lot of people, like, I feel defensive over Daniel because I feel like he gets a lot of fan hate, but there's good reasons yeah. for that. Like, Johnny calls the tacos uh, Apollo tacos instead yeah, of Pollo. And he, like, you see this, it's a small moment, but Daniel kind of, like, snorts at it, and then Amanda mouths, stop it. She's, because uh, it's yeah. such a dick move, and he, and he laughs at Johnny ordering the Coors, and he's got, like, top-shelf tequila that he's drinking, and yeah. you're like, this is so far away from the little kid looking through the window at the country club and the spaghetti. Oh, gosh. And sorry, I keep doing this. I keep thinking of all these great lines. I love this chapter. There's a there's a paragraph pretty much right after the one I just read about them becoming acclimated to the lifestyle. And this is so great. So I have to read it real fast. In a year or two, they had become fully acclimated in the lifestyle. The country club set experimented with swinging and same-sex relationships and enjoyed its fair share of left-handed cigarettes and recreational substances. Daniel found that the longer he just went along with it, the less he agonized over it as a conscious choice. This was the world he always looked in on from the outside, and now he was inside, and the spaghetti was on someone else's shirt. He was the one dancing with the wife who looked like a model, while some skinny nerd peered in from the kitchen window. So it's like, so good. It's like, it's us remembering the Daniel that we remember and how far away the Daniel that we see in Cobra Kai is from that kid. So yeah. it's yeah. so sad. And that was so great. I love the spaghetti. It was on someone else's shirt. That's so well put. Thank you. Again, I really think, I mean, and I don't say this to like be self-deprecating or anything. I mean, it's just fan fiction. It's fun, but like I couldn't write that in 2020. That's a 2018 thing. Like that is, it's very much a product of what's going on. And like you, how you get inspired is a lot to do with what's happening around you. You know, um, God, I wish I knew how to write like that now. I don't, you know, I'm, I know if, if, if this changes, it'll probably go back, but like, I, I don't know. Yeah, it will. It's in you, but yeah, sometimes things come out that sort of impress you as a writer and then you feel, and then it's like, you feel like you've set the bar too high for yourself and you're oh, like, God, I can't yeah. ever write that well, <laughs> which is kind of a nice, but bad feeling to have. It's kind of why I'm obsessed with Paul McCartney, actually. Yeah. Exactly, that's exactly where that hero worship comes from. That very thing. Like being able to like. Constantly be producing the best work that you've produced. And maybe the, the shadow of the Beatles. The quality of the Beatles was always at his back. And so moving on from that. And oh, Paul. Yeah. And not that that's on the same level as like fan fiction for Calvary. I just mean like. Yeah. This idea that you would do something really well and then it would be really easy just to kind of be like, that's it. And to be willing to embarrass yourself, which I, my God, but yeah, yes. also. Yeah. Paul McCartney produced so many, so much great stuff as a solo and as uh, with Wings, his band after the Beatles. And then there's some stuff that you're like, 
Oh, Paul, why? (laughs) He still did it though. And I'm like, that's, and again, that goes back to that thing of just do it. Like it's, don't worry about the plant and where it's sitting in the living room. Just do it. Just do it. Put it out there. Put your wife in the band. (laughs) She can't sing. She has, she's tone deaf. But it doesn't matter. Put Linda in the band. It's all about your sheepdog. Do whatever you want. Oh, my yeah. gosh. I love that about Paul. Paul McCartney, uh, he was just – I love that he, he, you know, he did become a superstar. And I'm sure that some of that went to his head. But he was just oh, yeah. always a unique person. And, like, you know, sometimes he just wanted to be this weirdo farmer in Scotland and, like, recording in his, you know, shack or – I don't know. But he was just always so unique and – I mean, not to go way down this, I don't mean oh, to no, like yeah. the structure Do of it. what you're doing. I was just going to say that my favorite thing was stumbling upon, which, cause I knew nothing about music period. And I'm like stumbling upon these seventies Paul McCartney things. And I found that Mollifentire song. Yeah. And my first reaction was to kind of laugh at it. Oh, yeah. I, I was like, is he serious? And then I found out. that What was it? The sex pistols were putting out punk at the exact same time. He's standing on a beach with bagpipes. And I'm like, that takes guts. Totally. Like, you know you're a cheese. You know this isn't going to sell anywhere except in Scotland, but you are still strumming that guitar, having a good time on that beach. And I find that so amazing. Like, Oh, he's wow. he's great. And there's, um, yeah, we'll t- I mean, we don't have to go totally off, but I would say that uh, the relationship between McCartney and Lennon it's like it's so it's just as appealing as Johnny and Daniel because they are it's like same but di- different but same and you have these kind of like stereotypes about them but what's true is that Paul really was interested in making people feel good you know and John Lennon was so critical of that and he's like what are you doing man you're creating cotton candy but Paul you know I love that cuz I feel like I'm an optimist and I feel like we only have one life so you might as well try to feel good and make people feel good. And Lennon kind of had a real cynicism about that. But Paul was just, I don't know. He just liked to entertain people and he's still doing it. God, I just, that's amazing. And you know, the Johnny Daniel thing, it's kind I do, I was looking at it and I was like, oh, this is weird to read this now. Because I was like seeing things through that different lens, I guess. But like, yeah, I do think like the car salesman I mean, honestly, like we could say Daniel has a lot in common with the showman who's always performing and you don't really know who they are deep down. Yes. They're going out and they're smiling and they're charming and winking and doing all these things with their, you can see him even at the party thinking about him servicing these people because it's, it's plausible to imagine that he's always trying to please everybody. Yes. Whereas Johnny's like, I I don't live my life like, like what what are you? And it's funny because he used to be Mr. Popularity, but he kind of yeah. renounces that. So yeah, absolutely. I think, and I, I do think making him a car salesman does capitalize on some of that, some of that charm that we see in Karate Kid. That could oh always, yeah. It was a little slimy. There were moments that you just, like when he's eating Allie's face off and you're like, <laughs> I, I you know, I, I think that was Ralph Macchio getting so excited for his first on-screen kiss. He's like, was, we're going to do it. Uh, it's sort of slimy. Like, I, I now kind of have a different perspective just a little on how all that transpired. Yeah. And part of that is probably our being more aware of, like, um, feminism. Stuff. Yeah. And <laughs> I don't know. And I think John Avelson was probably just like, go for it. You know, kiss the pretty <laughs> girl. And 
I don't know if that what that was about. It's kind of a bizarre a kiss. But Kiara on the uh, in the Cobra Kai companion group because we were talking about that kiss, and she was like, "It's just it's his Italian, the passionate side of him. It's his Italian side." And I was like, "Okay, I'll buy that." <laughs> but it's, oh, I, uh, I don't, don't know. know. I don't know. I just and I hate to keep associating with car salesman as being so promiscuous, but there is like a promiscuity to it. Cause you, yeah. I mean, anytime I've ever bought a car that you almost feel like you're being like hit on or it's, it's, it's such a twisted sort of uncomfortable feeling when they, they approach you and they show how he and Amanda go after their customers when they need to move the cars it's, off the floor. Isn't and that a weird scene? Worthy. It's kind of like, Ooh. Yeah, it is weird. <laughs> together. <laughs> like a man is saying, I thought you were serious. And then turning around and the guy's like, oh, wait a minute. And they like look at each other and like do a finger gun. It's like, good job. It's like, oh, this is, it's yeah. So, I yeah, mean, I think it's a fun. Free karate lessons, but look what you're doing. Like, I don't know. There's this yeah. weird capitalism thing with Daniel that does not add up. That's like, he thinks yeah. he's doing all this good with his you know, charity karate, but he, yet he's, yeah. He's, yeah. And I think, you know, they do, they do mention that in season two where Daniel says the first car dealership he ever worked out, there was a really slimy guy that was, was his boss. And Daniel's technique was to treat people like a normal person and look them in the eye and be honest. So I think, and Daniel's just a, he's not going guy. He's a talker, you know, he's a personality. So I, I do kind of like that they made him a salesman, but I hopefully with what you're getting at, which is that it really does become this like disingenuous kind of, it's like a lot of, it's far away from like what he learned from Mr. Miyagi. So I yeah. hope we get back yeah. to that in season three and kind of reconcile yeah. Daniel's true self. And was, when we talked to Bree, you know, her thing was that, she doesn't really believe that Daniel ever told Amanda about what happened in Karate Kid 3. Um, and I like that. I kind of hope they go with that talk because I feel like Daniel hiding that from her, it's just kind of contributes to this uh, view of him that he's hiding from himself or trying to be somebody he's not. And uh, I don't know. Very mm -hmm. flawed characters. Yeah, they are. You think they are. You think they have their shit together and then you watch the show. And you're like, oh. Yeah, especially Daniel. And I think the... Most of the change, it seems like, in this series is uh, Daniel kind of both. It's like, I think it's well said. I don't remember if it was in Johnny or in Daniel, but there's, oh, let me just try and see if I can find it. But it's, or maybe it's in balance. But it's, it is about, it seems like it's what you're getting at is them finding balance, especially Daniel with who he was and who he is and being overly controlling and not having any control in his life and... Johnny seems to somehow bring out a side of him that seems to balance who he is as a person. And so I think there's more change going on with Daniel, but it also seems like Daniel kind of uh, brings out, he like, Johnny kind of lets his walls down. Like he, like it's, it sounds um, corny, but it's balance is one of the most beautifully written love scenes I've ever read. And Johnny actually, you know, he like cries a little bit <laughs> during it, which is like easy to laugh at. But it's him. He mentions it in the show is that he's never let his walls down with anyone except Allie. And I feel like that's, yeah. that's Johnny's change maybe is like letting his walls down around Daniel, I think. Yeah. And being willing to be the, be the support for him once he finds out that he is 
who he really, really is. Yeah. You know, there's that temp, that side of him that's tempted to keep going, okay, hey, whore. Like there is yeah. a side that wants to take over and he's actually able to go, whoa, hold on. <laughs> yeah, that was really sweet how that fight turned. It's like Johnny's provoking Daniel and Daniel freaks out. And then Johnny kind of goes, like he's really freaking out. And then yeah. he helps Daniel out. Uh, and there's a really sweet line about remember that kid up on that poster or something in the crane kick. That was my hero, which calls back to the hero nickname that I think he calls Daniel at some point. Daniel's like, don't call me that. Or I don't know. It's just really sweet. Most lovely. Yeah. Well, and I do hate, I mean, just to be perfectly honest, I hate the erasure. This was another reason I wrote this, but I, I hate the erasure of the moment where Johnny does change at the end of the Karate Kid and gives him the trophy. And in this yeah. series, I'm not, I don't mean that they've complete, maybe it wasn't intentional, but they leave that out. He falls and that's all we see. Yeah. Like that, that is, that bothers me. I understand we want him to start out low and that the fall is symbolic and all that crap. It is important to remember that they actually left as friends. You know, for a moment yeah. they left as friends. So this whole feud kind of seems like they're retro fitting, you know, and, yeah. and trying to imagine that that didn't happen. Yeah. I think, I hope that they get into that and that maybe part of that is all the stuff about Cobra Kai from Karate Kid 3 that Johnny doesn't know about maybe. And maybe that's why Daniel freaks out so badly when he sees the dojo. I mean, because the first scene, the only thing I would say that maybe makes that fit is that the very first time Johnny sees Dan, uh, sorry, that Daniel sees Johnny, he like, he's glad to see him and he hugs him. and Hey, Johnny, right, you know, yeah, right. You're absolutely right. So like, yeah, Johnny was- certainly is not glad to see Daniel, which is true. Right. But Daniel's kind of like, oh my God, <laughs> come here. <laughs> and there's an awkward hug. and <laughs> Yeah. And how easy oh, is yeah. it to friendly when you're on top and making money and like yeah that's true yeah, it's totally making me think 1970s stuff um but like yeah <laughs> yeah now i kind of get it like because when somebody comes in to any space that you're in and, and you're not doing as well as you should and they Ugh. come in they're like oh my god it's so good to see you why don't you want to be my best friend and you're like get your hands off me. uh it's so it's like, like high school reunion yeah like, yeah well, <laughs> i don't want to remember you or yeah um, yeah. I don't know. Was there anything I I love the the titles of the the pieces and they're just was there anything specific about like starting out with you know the name Bird and then I do love how it ends with Johnny and Daniel. I mean there's some other obvious ones where like Encino is the Encino memories. I love key cuz this there's this like key metaphor where obviously the key is the uh Johnny giving the key to Daniel to the Cobra Kai dojo. But it's also like this trust thing. The key to his heart. Oh, it's the key to his heart. It is, though. <laughs> it's so sweet. But it's about uh, trust, I think, and control. And Because, yeah, you do this thing with control where, like, they start this affair and Johnny kind of starts to realize that, um, I don't know, that Daniel's maybe not. He has this, like, facade that he's always in control. And then Johnny kind of realizes that. He has this complex about control and then he like freaks out yeah. if he thinks you're trying to control him. So Johnny kind of lets in some ways Daniel take the lead on things. And that's part of the key is that he's letting Daniel choose when he comes to the dojo. And 
Yeah. So like control is a big thing. It feels like. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think at the time when I was writing this again, it just keeps going back to DNA. I was writing, not writing. I was reading a story where I was again, Harry and Draco, I think. And I, there was some element of BDSM or some element of whatever dominant submissive activity and all this stuff. And, um, it was done really beautifully. Like, and it, it was, I read it and I thought, wow, this is just amazing. And I, I don't know. I What was really fun to play with was this idea of doing that on a very, very small level, just little small things where you could see it that way or you could just kind of pass it by. Yeah, like the tying of the hands in the pool or something. Like that's just fun, but you could also go somewhere with it if you wanted to or, you know, but yeah. the idea being that he always chose it. Which yeah. Very clear in the the stories I've read that are done well, you know, that do do honor that community where, you know, it is always a choice. It's not people beating each other up for yeah. fun, you know. Um, so yeah, yeah, that pool scene was great because I mean, it, it's not like you're making up this thing where they're like go kinkily tie hands to the pool like that really happens in the show. They were high. <laughs> yeah, because they tied the wrist. It was so, a little weird. Yeah. yeah. And that, and that is in the story, it's a lesson for the kids and it stays that way. But there is a, a really kind of sweet, sexy moment in the pool, which is one of my favorites in the, in the series. It's great. Um, but in balance, uh, which again is that beautifully written, it's like sort of the centerpiece love scene of the story. But there's this great, uh, insightful part to Daniel and what we're talking about, which is balance and control. Um, I'll just read this couple of paragraphs. Let's see. So they're go- so Johnny and Daniel are at the dojo, and things are things are about to heat up a little bit. And this is kind of in Daniel's head. Um, there had been two poles of behavior that governed Daniel's life: absolute passivity in the form of following others, and the need for absolute control. The need for control came somewhere after Miyagi's death and Sam's decision to quit learning karate. The control also had its place in his affairs with other people. Rarely was Daniel, quote, unquote, on the bottom when he and his wife participated in Encino parties, which still occurred every now and again. As a salesman, Daniel had learned to treat the men and women he slept with as a form of customer, and he always wanted them to leave satisfied. Now, it seemed he existed in the in-between, or the balance of control and submission, which is so great. Johnny was leading now, but it was only because he had fully participated in the dance to begin with. He chose it over and over again. He had a key, and he wasn't afraid to use it, which is great, as in Daniel had the key. And I think that's that's exactly everything we've been talking about with Daniel as kind of this salesman role he's been playing, and uh, he finds that balance with Johnny, and it's just really good. It's lovely. Thank you. It's weird hearing it and going, I don't remember. This sounds but I don't remember writing that. Like, yeah. I mean, I remember writing it as a whole, but like, I, I'm just sitting here thinking, yeah, it was such, it's weird how much has just, you know, creatively yeah. in the world has changed since then, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's two years ago. And um, yeah, it's really, you did a great job with it. And you've written a lot since then. So this goes pretty far back in your, in your, um, bibliography I guess. I don't know what you would call it but you wrote this a long time ago and you did a great job with it but you've written a lot since and um yeah I don't know is there anything you feel like with the the bird series that we haven't touched on there's it's just a beautiful to me it's like one of the one of the classics of the pairing for sure that if you're a La Russa fan 
Uh, you have to read the Bird series. It was one of the first. It, it set the bar high in the in this pairing. The, it was the first long, sca- large scale story in the pairing, and I feel like it's just a classic. And you know, if I ever do like a top ten Larusso, it's on the list for sure, uh, near the top or at the top. Uh, oh, it's at the top of the list, which is a <laughs> reference to the list. You know, if you've read it, you know what that means. I'm, Johnny's going to have to elaborate. Yeah. Johnny's at the top of the list. I love that. But um, yeah, I don't know. Is there, um, I feel like we can talk about some of your Dimitri and Eli stuff, but is there anything else with this series that you remember writing or themes or I don't know, anything with birth that we should touch on? I think you, you did a good job bringing up the things that were probably the most important. So thank you for reading and just- uh, you're leading it. Thank you for writing it. That's one of my, and I'm actually glad that I have these printed out now because I have the space on my bookshelf that <laughs> it'll go right next to Bree's Walk in the Woods, which I'm going to keep printing off as she goes. And yeah, it's going to, I feel like I've always wanted to have like a fan fiction library, but um, yeah, it's a beautiful series. It's so well done. And it has, um, you know, we were talking with, with Bree last week about, you know, explicit fic. And I feel like this is done in a way where it's because if you dance around it and just turn the lights off in the room all the time with uh, explicit scenes and fic, then somehow it's just unsatisfactory. But it's also not like porn without plot. It's just really beautiful. And there's always so many emotions underpinning uh, any of the love scenes, especially when you get all the way to that chapter balance, which is almost at the end of the series. You've you put a lot of work into building up to that and it really shows. So it's, it's great. I can't say enough nice things about this series. It's one of my favorites ever. Well, uh, thank you. Yeah, totally. It's awesome. So read the bird series. If you haven't, I hope we haven't spoiled it. Um, here's uh pillow town series, which honestly I kind of ran out of time and I haven't reread these as closely. There's um, not a lot to read closely. Yeah, no, I, it's, it's, you know, it's not that, I don't know, maybe it's two or 3,000 words altogether, but um, I don't know if you just want to talk about, so you had done this big series in 2018, and you were super plugged in uh, in 2018 with Johnny and Daniel and season one, and then we hadn't seen a lot from you for a while, and then you came back, and I was just surprised that, although there are little hints of a possible suggested romance between Johnny and Daniel, but it's really focused on Eli and Dimitri. Um were those a couple of characters that you kind of immediately grabbed onto or I guess why Eli and Dimitri for this new stuff? So what happened was I wasn't even really paying that much attention to what was going on with Cobra Kai until it became April or May. You know, we were in quarantine and I realized I'd heard nothing about a season three. And I thought this is odd because not that I've really been waiting on pins and needles because I had kind of moved on and focused on other things, but I did find it odd that there wasn't anything out there. And so I remember that sort of re, re I guess it kind of reignited a little bit of interest because I started digging. And so I ended up going back and watching season two again to see if I could give it more of a fair shake because I realized we may not, I guess maybe we weren't going to get a season three. So I, I renewed my subscription, which had gone down a little bit on YouTube. I guess they realized, you know, they're moving on and, um, but it, I watched it, and I, I, 
to be honest, like I still had the same reaction as I did the first time, which is that the stuff that we were given about Johnny and Daniel in season one was so beautiful and so worth exploring. But in season two, they basically took what happened to them in season one and regurgitated it Mm -hmm. with a meal instead of a drink at the bar. And then the fight in the apartment versus the fight in Daniel's home. Yeah. It kind of feels a little repetitive. It was repetitive. And that for me made it really hard to want to write anything about them. And when I would try, it didn't like, there was nothing new to do with it. Yeah. I see what you mean. So like I want, when I went back and watched season two, I remembered the thing I had, the one thing that had really stood out to me was Dimitri. Like, I didn't expect any of the stuff with him and with Daniel. I didn't expect the Hawk stuff. I And I remember the moments. And when I was watching it, that was the relationship that was giving us new stuff. Yeah. That was the new stuff. And that was the new love-hate bond that we no one really had noticed before. And what I really enjoyed noticing was like how incredibly frustrating and long it took to get Dimitri to a place where he could sort of defend himself, not even perfectly. And, but they earned it and he did get there. And even before he did know how to defend himself completely, when he stands up to make that roast, I mean, I remember I just kind of sat up straighter in my chair. I thought, this is interesting. Like I was like, this is what you should do your whole show around. I remember thinking that, that this is kind of where this show lives is with these two guys and with this, what's happened to them is, you know, during all of this. So that's kind of where that came from was just realizing how much that part of the story in season two captivated me and how much some of the other arcs were sort of stagnant a Mm. little bit, mainly because they had to make room for crease and they had to make room for all that stuff. So, yeah, I think the young cast gives, and Machio and Zavko said it, that the young cast gives the show so much more, uh, I don't know, depth and color and the potential. Like, to me, Johnny and Daniel are always going to be my favorite part of the show. And their kind of will they, won't they uh, is great. But if it was just that, it would get repetitive and old. And so the the layer yeah. of the, their children and pseudo children, but also, yeah, these other these other kids and, and Dimitri and... Uh, Eli is great because it, it it's totally different, and I think a lot of that is the the Hawk Eli. Uh, I don't know what you would call it dichotomy or like it's like two characters in one, and so Dimitri is mourning the loss of Eli and having to deal with this new Hawk person, uh, and it's a loss of a friendship, and I don't know. It's yeah, it's totally different from Johnny and Daniel. Well, and again, it's also where you are at the time. And so what I was doing, not in the pillow town section so much, but maybe a little after it was, you know, I was reading not just about like Paul and John with the Beatles, but I was reading and watching a lot of documentaries and I'm reading a lot of books about bands and the connections there. And since that's something I was interested in, that fed through to like wanting to play around with people who had been really intimate, but then became uh, what came because it's like it's so different with Johnny and Daniel. It starts in a negative place, or you know, yeah, for all intents and purposes, even though they made up at the end of whatever. But like it, it starts negative and gets positive, or at least has room to get positive. Yes. Whereas this this situation 
you know, the binary brothers, so to speak, is kind of more tragic because they kind of spoke the same language. And then one of them took that language and used it against the other one, you know, kind of what it's. Yeah. And that to me is very, I don't know. I think that relate, I relate more to that kind of thing right now, probably because I have been reading about like those kinds of relationships in different pop culture groups. Yeah, that's really, I don't know why I hadn't really put together in my head the, because there's so much kind of uh, McCartney, Lennon, bitterness and resentment going on. Yeah, I can totally read that into the uh, Dimitri and Eli. And actually, even with the Hawk thing, it's like John Lennon during the Beatles breakup, you know, he was doing a lot of acid and in his relationship with Yoko, it's almost like he was turning into another person a lot. Like I think Eli kind of turns into Hawk and Paul and the other Beatles really resented that change in John. And a lot of people blame that breakup. I mean, it wasn't all on that, but John's change and his closeness with Yoko kind of did break up the band, or at least a lot of the blame went that way. And it's almost like, it's like Cobra Kai is the Yoko of this breakup. Like, Eli turns into this other person, just like Paul's and George and Ringo's view of John maybe turning into another person around Yoko. And again, what's what's really hard, though, I think, and, and I mean, this is just just the truth, is like, depending on what you're experiencing is what you're going to write. So, like, for example, I, the only thing I really have as an experience recently in lockdown has been discovering different bands and listening to music in a different way. Yeah. So that's like everything written about Eli and Dimitri comes from that lens. And like there are references all in all of those from the stuff I've read, like weird, like he rammed forward, you know, just stupid stuff. I wrote it for me. I didn't write it. No one else can get that joke. Yeah. Ram, just to explain to the listener, Ram was Paul's first solo album after the Beatles broke up. And uh, there's a lot actually in that album that seems kind of um, sort of of an F you or a response to some of the stuff John had been saying or writing in his songs uh, during the breakup. Yeah, it's like I and I thought for like Eli too, this idea that he would be associated, however, tangentially with the possibility of imitating a non-binary person. So like this idea of Freddie Mercury, like it's Mm. weird because I didn't want to use the Beatles. I wanted it to be one step removed. So I was like, okay, well, what else kind of looks like this? And it was, I just seen Bohemian Rhapsody. In that story, there isn't the same type of drama, but there's like, I don't know. um, You see these men, like whether you're watching a documentary of like the Rolling Stones or you're watching... Bohemian Rhapsody, or you're watching one about Elton John, you're seeing a lot of men in the 70s playing with their gender. Yeah. Experimenting. And I thought it would be interesting if maybe Eli's biggest secret isn't that he wetted the bed. It's that he dressed like one of those people. And he was the very opposite of the masculine super bully hawk. Yeah. Young child, he would literally dress in sequins. And I I thought that was an interesting idea that that would be his deepest secret, not, you know, okay, I peed in the bed, whatever, but then do that, you know? (laughs) Yeah. That's way more interesting. You know, telling him or or confessing in front of, I had this image of him confessing something like that at a party and saying, well, guess what? We used to dress up. Guess what he dressed up as? Yeah. I was actually the normal guy and he dressed up in the weird clothes of the guy who was kind of playing around with the gender roles. So yeah, that's really great. Um, 
just maybe together as kind of binary brothers. Not that even they, their gender identification is necessarily, oh, I don't know, whatever it needs to be, but just that they let each other, they let the walls down around each other and didn't yeah. worry about uh, identity as much and we're just having fun as kids and um, yeah, I love that. And it makes it such a loss to look at them singing, you know, and karaokeing queen music together and then what they are now, which is like bitter and just miles apart and um it's just such yeah. a loss and that it's sad yeah and I, I guess it's just again it's it goes back to what you're surrounded by and what you're reading and what you're listening to at the time every time you write something it's sort of growing out of whatever's happening in that cultural moment in a sense and like I said the main thing that's happening right now for a lot of us is just kind of enjoying the music we listen to or reading what we want to read because we can't really go out and do other things. So like everything that I wrote about them has come from just those kinds of times where I've thought about new things during this time, but I haven't actually left the house. So it's kind of, it's never going to be that strong because it's not built on the same type of thing that Bert was, but like, it's just, it's the kind of stuff you would write in a pandemic. (laughs) Well, it, you know, it's new and it's uncharted territory. Not as many – there's like Beta Cobras writing about Hawk and that's about the yeah. only person writing about Hawk. Um, so – and you're really the only – one of the only people writing about Dimitri at all as a character. So, you know, it's uncharted territory and, you know, there might be some better – hopefully there'll be some better material to work with after season three. But it's – this This to me was great stuff because it's refreshing. Um, and yeah, and you – I guess my question, besides the the Beatles, maybe, um, which I can really read into this now that I'm thinking about it, uh, what other music you've been, have you been listening to or sort of discovering that um, maybe is influencing the way you write? I guess, I mean, the Queen hits that are kind of interwoven into that. And any, literally like anything between like 70 and 85, really, um, cool. it's just... I'm kind of at the beginning of collecting a lot of re- old records from thrift stop thrift stores. Um, so like it is a lot about the Beatles and then their solo, I have their solo albums as well and the way that they sung those hate messages back and forth. And, uh, but I also have James Taylor and how oh, yeah. like some, you know, people like that. I think I even have a, a Billy ocean record where he sings Caribbean queen, you know, just stuff that's, Reminds you of a different time because, you know, it's just 2020 sucks. So maybe let's go back to 1983 and listen to Caribbean Queen, even though it's cheesy as hell. Or, you know, 1976 or 1973 and listen to Band on the Run or, you know, just stuff oh, that such did, a great. It, it evokes different times than the one we're living in. Yeah. Like, <laughs> are, you, are you doing vinyl? Yes. Awesome. Yeah. yeah, and that's different because it's harder to skip. So it's more of an experience to put a record on and listen to it all the way through and look at the liner notes and the album art. Yeah, it's it, that is a very intentional thing. Yeah, it's absolutely to be listening to it on vinyl and to be able to touch it and to be able to do something physical with my hands as I'm trying to experience it. I think it does make it very different than when I'm listening to it on Spotify. Yeah, totally. Yeah, the tangibility is a is a big thing. And some people don't seem to care about that, but I do. I had a big vinyl, uh, listening kind of phase between like 
2012, 13, 14, because I was in college and I had a record player. And then I kind of moved some places. And with my twin sister and I, we kind of, I think, I don't know if one of us got the record player or if it went to my parents' house, but it kind of got lost in some moves. And then I haven't really, I didn't, I didn't listen to vinyl really up until I finally set it back up again this year. And I finally pulled all my records back from my parents' house. And um, so, yeah, I'm trying to get back into that too, because it's, it's so great just to, and we have the time now, like you said, to put on an album and just enjoy it. Learn something new. Cause I yeah. think that's one of the things that helps like in any time like this is to be able to like learn new things that yes. you didn't know before. Like that's, we do have the time to do that. So yeah, that, that's the saving grace is I don't think I ever would have discovered the Beatles had we not been in this situation. So yeah. Are some of these bands a rediscovery or is this kind of the first no. time? No, I was, a, I was a kid when I was little whose music taste was like Millie Vanilli. <laughs> I used to be made fun of, that was a big source of bullying for the people I dated because they were Blame all on the rain. <laughs> It was, and like one of the people I dated was a drummer and the other person, you know, it, and they would always go, oh, don't ask her what her favorite song is. And I'm like, thanks guys. And I, don't, <laughs> I mean, I can't even explain where it got. I think it was that I started reading a little bit about punk and Patti Smith. And then, yeah. and then that actually led to the Beatles thing was almost an accident. I was reading about that hotel Chelsea building in New York where all these people in the eighties stayed and it was famous. And a lot of the the punk stars in New York during that time got, were, were living in that area like St. Mark's place and CBGB and all that stuff. So I yeah. was reading about that. And then I had to get on an airplane in June and there was a book sitting on a shelf and it was called the Dakota winners. And it was about the building, the Dakota and I was like, oh, I think this one is also important. And I didn't know why. I just knew it was. And I'd seen something about it, but I couldn't remember what it was. And I read the book and it takes place in 1979. And it's about a young boy who comes home to the Dakota to live in 79 and 80. And you can imagine how it ends. But like he's actually he and his family are friends with celebrities. So they even go sailing with them and all this stuff. And there were scenes in the book that I didn't understand because he'd be out with John Lennon on a boat. And I'm like, I really don't care about this. And John Lennon would be complaining about somebody named Paul. And I was like, <sighs> I would sit there and I would Wikipedia all this stuff just to understand this stupid book. It, and and now, was this fiction how, or is this autobiography? Fiction. Okay. He wrote as if it was happening. So he kind of brought, I guess, Lennon back to life as a character. It's yeah. kind of like fiction in a way and it's a beautiful book and I've like tweeted the author and retweeted him because uh, I'm like you changed my life you have no idea I'll check you that know, out um, yeah that's all and we'll put it in the show notes too yeah for those of you who don't know yeah John Lennon's uh last I don't know how long he was at the Dakota with Yoko but he moved uh after the breakup of the I Beatles think- he moved maybe five years or something five or six yeah, that's right. Because he, so he moved to New York, and you know John Lennon at that time couldn't go anywhere without being recognized. But there's this big apartment building in New York called the Dakota. It's very kind of like white walled and modern. And Yoko was a modern artist, so it sort of fit with her aesthetic and their aesthetic at the time. And then he had his second son, Sean, who was a baby, I think, when they maybe moved in. So, and John died in 1980. Uh, was assassinated when Sean was a little kid. So that kind of, that was kind of the last chapter of his life was living at the Dakota 
And uh, he was kind of, uh, I, I don't know if I would say totally estranged from Paul at that point, but they were just living different lives. And yeah. uh, there's a great, you, you've you uh, mentioned that you've seen it and I'd seen it. The uh, There's a film called Two of Us. Yes. Is that, yes. And it's uh, Aiden Quinn plays Paul McCartney and Jared Harris, who is Richard Harris's son, who's a brilliant actor. He plays John. And it's somewhere in that period where they're at the Dakota or John's at the Dakota. And yeah. it's like a biopic of like a, a sort of a fantasized. It is like fan, like the Dakota one winter. day like fan fiction of the Dakota again. Yes, it is. It's like a movie yeah. version of fan fiction. And it's so good. You can find it on YouTube. Um, I'm sure there's more legitimate ways to watch it, but those two actors are great, and it's a really beautiful look at maybe what what their relationship might have been like at that time. Um, well, you made that comment of like, do you, were you rediscovering it or discovering it? What was so bizarre was it's like I knew all I knew a lot of the music. I just had no idea. I, I honestly thought some of those songs just came down and existed always. Like yeah. I. And then I realized, oh, wait, there were people behind this. Like, birthday song? I just thought that was the birthday song. I grew up, I was <laughs> what like, a bizarre. So I was like, wait, whoa, whoa, wait. You said he wrote that? Like, how is this possible? And, like, I learned, I even listened to, like, an something that's on, um, it's called Junk or something. Oh, yeah. And, um, something Junk or Junk. I've, oh, and they, I can't remember. It's just instrumental, at least one version is and I was listening to it and I was like I've heard this my whole life and I've never known where it came from and nor did I ever ask like that's what's kind of cool about it is like during the pandemic I think there is this weird tendency to try to frame your own history and to figure out and go backward and see where things came from yeah um, because like I've read and this is also a Cobra Kai thing like I've reached out to high school friends I haven't heard it heard from in a long time and I think part of it is that show that kind of and, and part of it is hmm. sort of looking back you know yeah time where you have time to do that yeah just a quick question I didn't ask you had you been a fan of Karate Kid before you got into Cobra Kai I loved it when I saw it. Yeah. Um, I don't know that I was a fan in the sense that I thought about it a lot after yeah. I saw it. I think I just really liked it. And I loved the second one. I remember thinking that was really something that brought, I, I think I liked that one better than the first. And I remember laughing at the third one with a friend of mine. <laughs> like they were coming down that cliff on these ropes. So and all stupid. I remember was, 1989 and I remember sitting next to my friend Tracy on a couch and we just died like we were rolling on the floor that was my only memory of Karate Kid 3 that movie is the gift that keeps on giving because I hadn't I hadn't seen it um before I I had only seen clips before I discovered Cobra Kai I I knew of Karate Kid but I never sat down and watched it so I watched the show and then I went back and saw the movies and I had the same experience with Karate Kid 3 me and my sister my best friend we sat down and watched it and I I just lost my shit it's so and now that I have a full view of the universe I actually view Karate Kid 3 as quite dark but Terry Silver great yeah idea behind it it was just the execution that was kind oh, of odd i feel like a lot of it is john A john Avelson to me is like both a genius and a total weirdo like if you listen to william christopher ford who plays um dennis who is um one of the two henchmen um that it's always following terry around <laughs> um 
and we there's the bathtub too. What the hell? The bath. The, the yeah. The the um jacuzzi kind of conference. That is absolutely terrible. I, I was oh just... my god! But so good. At, like, can you imagine what that movie would have been like without Thomas Ian Griffith as Terry? Like, it would have been somehow the over the topness of that performance. I feel like. <laughs> makes the movie like you can tell and i ralph maggi is one of my favorites of all time and daniel's my favorite character but um ralph maggi wanted to be off that set so badly and oh, he's God, he yeah. he is you know the script is bad and his acting performance is not the best of his career no. <laughs> he's like the whole time he's just like hey hey what, what are you doing what are you? like that's the whole movie with ralph um but terry silver like he's just so crazy and insane and it's like perfect for martin cove too the the times he's in it is like he's such no over the top personality that crease and silver together are hilarious and um i don't remember where i was going with that but oh there are these images at the beginning of it that are beautiful that I thought could really be something. I remember the image of, of Priest coming in and the, the mail building mm-hmm. up and all the messages on the machine of all the payments that he hasn't gotten. And and I'm like, that is a really cool place to go back to for a third film, actually, to find out yes. what happened to these people. But then they were in the villains were in bubble baths oh and like I Terry could, Silver on the phone. <laughs> I couldn't do it. I'm like that thing where where Terry Silver is like, this is who you're fighting and puts a picture up of Mike Barnes. And I'm like, actually, Mike Barnes looks less threatening than Chosen. Like, I'm sorry. They were on an island and couldn't get off of it. Like, oh, my it was, gosh. It was just. Those yeah. characters, I, I legit, and people know this, who know me, I really hope we see both Mike and Terry because I think the thing that, <laughs> the thing that Cobra sorry. Kai, uh, that's okay, though, because I, underst- I understand why you don't want to see them. But I, I think like I what Bree does with it. I do like what Bree did with it. Truly, I yeah, do. Yeah, Mike's I, a terrifying. But the, the, the one in the film. <laughs> well, see, I think for me, it's like I want to I really want to see what the big three would do with it. Because I feel like and there's a lot because to me, there's a lot of silliness in general with the premise of the karate kid. It's like the stakes are so high with this like stupid karate tournament. And it's really ridiculous if you think about it. Life or death and karate kid. Oh, yeah. How do you make this matter? Right. It's so stupid. (laughs) Yeah. And I think that could be a problem for the season three that we're going to get is, you know, after everyone's fallen off cliffs literally and broken their backs, we're supposed to somehow be worried about a tournament, but we're actually yeah. just, we've already gone through worrying whether Miguel was going to live. Yeah. It's like going to be hard to backtrack and care about a tournament again. Like I know. I I feel like they can do it. I feel like these – I mean, we'll see, right? Yeah. But I feel like the writing has been good enough at this point that, I've, that I feel like they can take something silly, like a karate soap opera, and make yeah, it compelling. Absolutely. And I – it might be a stretch, but I feel like they could do it even with Terry Silver, which would be <laughs> such a feat to be able to take Terry Silver seriously. But oh, I f- my God. Please, God, no. <laughs> I don't want, I don't even want to take Terry Silver seriously. Oh, like, my God. All. Like, I have no desire in my body. Yeah. I don't want to take Chris seriously. Yeah. I was like, Amanda with, isn't he 72? I don't mean to be ageist, but I'm just like... I don't know why oh, yeah. we're bringing this man back. I don't think – I think it could have been better without him. I know they had to set it up. I know they had to have this big – something had to happen that was bigger than the first year, but 
Yeah, in a way, you're you're totally right that you have to kind of suspend your disbelief and you have to buy into the world, this like heightened reality of the valley where karate actually, like anyone <laughs> gives a shit about karate. Like the fact that so many people show up to the All Valley Tournament, like that's just a sign that you're in an alternate universe. Dimitri yeah. put that out so well. He said, yeah, I love Dimitri. This has been a thing for 50 years. That's my favorite moment. Oh, uh, like- it's so good. Yeah, yeah, he he kind of points out the and he, it's like a meta kind of moment where I Dimitri is the audience and he's like, "What? What is this? People give a shit about this." <laughs> it's so awesome. I love and that's kind of a tongue-in-cheek moment by the writers that they're they're smart enough to realize like, "Okay, we know this is kind of crazy. Like, no, these people wouldn't show up and the and the drama wouldn't be this intense, but we're going to do it and anyway." They certainly wouldn't have the money to print really big posters of their former every winter since i was like that's really not of course they're in california maybe they have the funds but i just was like wow okay (laughs) i know i would i would love to see a show just about the the all valley board people ron Ron and daryl and sue and george i've actually written george into a few fix and i put him with carmen almost just a sadly just to get carmen out of the way so johnny can be with daniel i love that yeah but so George appears, but yeah, that's the that group of characters is pretty fun with the All Valley Board. But yeah, it's a silly world for sure. Ugh, I'm just drinking some. I my drink today was some um, chilled vodka in honor of uh, Daniel's uh, ice ice cold. I didn't have the stuff to make a martini, but I was like, I got some vodka. I got a bottle of vodka. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah, I'm drinking a Daniel. <laughs> yes, a drink to Daniel in honor of Daniel. Yeah, just cold vodka. <laughs> Drinking my former self away. <laughs> I love that because I feel like I'm not going to look at Daniel drinking martinis the same way again because of your story. I'll be like, oh, he's just trying to swing with the rich people. And <laughs> It's actually funny how like fan fiction, sometimes um, you kind of absorb it and then you sort of forget what's canon and what's not. Mm-hmm. Like I remember, I think I had read some weird um, Breaking Bad fic about God, which is a weird fandom. First of all, because the only oh. pairing is a Jesse and Walter, which is weird. There's like a thirty year age Jesse and Walter fan fiction. And have oh, you? God, I think those people are brave. But there's a does. real, there's a real daddy theme going on there. Oh God! Uh, but there's a there's a fic where there's a scene where Jesse's helping Walter like dig a fire pit or something kind of domestic. And then I was I was talking to my boyfriend because we were watching Breaking Bad. I was like, oh, what happened last episode? Was there that fire pit thing? And he was like, what are you talking about? And I was like, ah, oh, that was fan fiction. Oh, my God. That's so funny. I forgot. That's a That is amazing. Yeah, it happens. Bad. Like, that's that even makes it better that you yeah. made that mistake with that. Yeah, it was weird. I don't know why. I was in that uh, – I was reading those stories for, like, a couple of days, and I was like, mm, <laughs> I'm not into this. Yeah, you can't stay long. It starts to yeah, because the the power balance is so weird in that. Oh really, god, so. yeah, it's already twisted enough. You know, oh yeah. yeah, you don't even need sex between. Mm-hmm. You don't need it because their relationship is so twisted. Yeah. Without, so yeah, it's a great show, but yeah, that doesn't work. But that's why I think Daniel and Johnny work so well because they're they're on the they're on the same playing field, but they're on the opposite sides of it, kind of. Yeah, and it's interesting too that like. I used to have this belief and I think it's being shattered now, but 
that often you could tell which generation someone was from based on who they liked in Cobra Kai. And like Mm. all of us from Gen X are kind of big Daniel fans. And then my friends, two of whom were young, a lot younger than me, who watched the show, when I would bring him up, they're like, oh God, that not that guy. Like, because they, they, they weren't raised on him. And so they found him completely cheesy and they were identified, they were really on Team Johnny. And I was like, but it's going to flip on you. Just wait. And they're like, we don't want it to flip. And I'm like, <laughs> okay. Well, Johnny's story is so compelling. And uh, I, I'm curious to see if that changes in season three, as in if we get more for Daniel. And I, I mean, I consider myself a fan for sure, but I just adore Johnny. And I think the only reason I said I was a Daniel girl is that I feel a little protective of him because I feel like he does. And probably the Johnny girl, you know, people who are more of a Johnny fan probably feel the same way about Johnny. I think we all have our biases. But I feel like Daniel kind of gets, you know, people don't give him the benefit of the doubt in Cobra Kai. And he's easier, you know, he's less easy to sympathize with because he's got the life, you know, he's got the wife and the kids and the house and the job where johnny doesn't yeah. you know johnny doesn't have shit and he you know he works really hard for everything that he gets and then he loses everything <laughs> so it's easy to sympathize with johnny and he's such a soft teddy bear even though he seems like all tough on the outside he's yeah. such a sweetie <laughs> and I, you know that's a tribute to the acting there oh. i don't know that that would have Again, I, I'm just not yes. sure how much that would have worked otherwise. And in, in fact, the first few episodes I watched him, I wasn't on board with his acting. But then he just started growing into it, mm-hmm. and I grew into his portrayal of it, and I became a huge fan of what he did. But, like, yeah. when I was first watching, I was like, I don't think I could. Like, he's, like, throwing the trash away and insulting the, <laughs> insulting the Latino boy. And I'm like, I can't do this. I yeah. remember having some feelings and just not sure I was going to make it through. But... Yeah, I do like that about Johnny that he's um he's got these uh I don't know, yeah, negative character traits, but you can tell he's such a good person underneath and he's just kinda had a really shitty thirty years <laughs> to get through and and yeah, William Zabka is like one of the like we all knew Ralph was good and he's his career was difficult that he was being a family man and kind of out of the scene for a long time, but we all knew what he did in The Outsiders and The Karate Kid and other movies. Like, he's a really great actor, and so it's nice to see him back. But nobody knew that William Zabka could give such a beautiful performance. Like, he deserves an Emmy. I think Ralph does, although, like I've said before, I'm kind of waiting to see uh, if Ralph gets some more opportunity to really dig into some some drama. Like I told Bree, he needs to cry. He needs some cry scenes because William Zabka's had like three cry scenes and as tough as Johnny is, you're like, you're all in because you're like, ah, oh, fuck, right. this guy's been through some shit and William Zabka is incredible. He's so emotive. He does so much with just his face. Yeah. Um, oh, he's so good. I'm so impressed with the act and the young cast. Like speaking about Hawk, like Eli and Hawk, that Jacob Bertrand is amazing. He's one of my, I think my favorite of the, I mean, they're all so good, but I'm impressed with, especially that scene where you get Eli crying to his mother um, in the beginning of whatever episode is getting the tattoo. Yeah. Yeah, Ah, Just so good. Absolutely. Yeah, those actors, the casting is so good. I think that guy, some guy in some interview said that, like, 
I think his comment was something about, you know, I came to see these two and he pointed to the two main actors. He's like, but I stayed for you guys. And he pointed to the team. Oh yeah. I think that was Kevin. What's his name? Yeah. That's because I, I honestly like that was my big sell at the beginning. But then as I watch it more and more, they're doing interesting things with these younger people too. Yeah. Um, are you karate kidding me as a podcast um, where they analyze all the show? Um, and I, that's a great podcast and it's under listened to people. People don't, uh, I don't know. I don't see the traffic on their podcast, but they're great. Colin and Jenny. But anyway, today, this morning I was listening to their recap of uh, Pulpo and it's that episode in season two where Johnny and Daniel are coming together and there's like, they have this tentative friendship and the salsa night. It's great. But all of the, like, that's just kind of like this background, which is fun to watch, but dramatically it's not that important. But in the background, yeah. The the year before. mm Mm-hmm. And then, um, yeah, it is similar to that bar scene. So all the interesting stuff is, as you said, it's at the party, um, with Eli and Dimitri and Sam and Tori and Robbie and Miguel, like all of the drama is with the teenagers in that episode. And their drama is and with Tara's. Don't forget Stingray. Oh, and Stingray. I actually find that insertion of him, I think that's brilliant. And he is a brilliant actor. He's I, so I, good. I've seen him in other things and I'm like, wow, that's. The uh, fact that he even gave time to play that small role was pretty cool. It is cool, and he's blown up since then. Um, and a lot of people don't. Yeah. Some some people don't like Stingray. I I find I him mean, so funny. I'm glad you agree because I think I mean you got to have comic relief. And people thought it was a little ham fisted or clumsy. See, I, I didn't compared to. And what was funny is one of the most genuine moments of Martin Cove's acting to me was when Stingray jumped out out of the ground and said, Red! <laughs> you actually see Martin Cove give a genuine, it's a beautiful moment where I actually like his character. He's so proud he of Stingray. And he's proud of him. He's like, good for you, Stingray. And I'm like, I actually like you right now for this split second. Yes. And Martin Cove, that's a tough part because it's a cartoonish character in a lot of ways. And my other favorite, and I loved that moment, um, and my other favorite moment, I think, is at the very end where he's he's seizing the dojo back from Johnny. And because uh, you can tell, I think what Martin Cove says about Kreese is that he loves two things in this world. One is Cobra Kai and one is Johnny Lawrence and not necessarily in any particular order. And that's the confusion. And I liked that. And I thought it, when he's seizing the dojo, he really, in a twisted way, thinks he's doing Johnny a favor which is a really tragic way to look at it. And it's a twisted way to look at it. But both those actors at that point, you know, Zabka's doing his thing and crying. And you're like, oh, my God, it's so beautiful and sad and horrible. And But Cove also just looks really torn, but he's trying to hold it together and be like, Cobra Kai is mine. And he he does want it, but he's also realizing that even if he says he's he's still teaching Johnny a lesson, it's fucked up and it's sad and ugh. Anyway, no, no, I think you're that's really interesting. And I haven't honestly watched season um, episode that part of episode 10 again recently. So I want to go back to you're saying that and look at it because, yeah, I that's really I and what you said about him saying he loves two things like that. I that's really interesting too. I had, yeah, because it is, it's like it's just a balance of like that character is so silly in some ways, and then sometimes you. 
I don't know. You can if you if Cove I think can and the writers can find a core of him that seems genuine on some level, then then it works. Yeah. But yeah, but other times it's just like okay, this is like this eighty year old badass that can somehow fight and beat up Johnny, which you think like the dojo fight in episode one of season two. You're like, mm, I think Johnny would kick his ass probably, but I'll just give them the credit and say that Chris can still fight. I guess at that age. <laughs> Well, and like I still think back to that moment where Dimitri touches his like <laughs> yeah, his tattoo, tattoo and he's like cringing. You're like, please God, in <laughs> the way you expect it to. But yeah, like, why are you touching this man's forearm? Why? It's or weird. His bicep, whatever. Yeah. Oh, Dimitri, he has no common <laughs> sense. He just gets so into the blah about the tattoos and the ink and that's this type of snake and not that well yeah he insulted yeah. the tattoo at the same time He's yeah like, that's actually not drawn correctly and i was thinking yeah oh dimitri <laughs> <laughs> that's not the battle you want that's not the hill you want to die on right no now. uh yeah he's great i hope we i'm just curious to see what we see of him in season three because he it's like in a way miguel was the new karate mm-hmm. like i feel like there were a lot of parallels with miguel yeah. and daniel but Dimitri is kind of more of the inheritor of like this goofy, uncoordinated kid who needs help. And that was Daniel. Yeah. So, the yeah. kid who ends up with the spaghetti is is Dimitri. Who, yeah. I mean, he's the one who, I mean, obviously Mary Mouser did during this year. But yeah. I mean, it was, if there is anybody who would slip and fall on a bunch of food. It would be <laughs> oh, definitely. Oh, my gosh. Um yeah, gosh, I feel like we talked, uh, we pretty much hit all the points I wanted to talk about. Yeah. Yeah, this is great. What are you working on now or what do you want to be working on or do you have any um, works in progress or ideas for the future of your, or if you're not writing, what are you reading? I do want to rewrite or not rewrite, but like create an alternate scene for the fight that Dimitri and there's a there's a shot of a photo where during the fight between Hawk and Dimitri, it looks like they're hugging. And it's I do I do want to rewrite and kind of build on that scene, but yeah. I'm a, I get really nervous writing fight scenes, so that's why I haven't started. It's that <laughs> yeah, that is tough. Yeah. So that's I've been kind of putting that off. But that was the idea was that there would have been a like at the end of the last little piece that he said something like the song was in his head until school started and then school was going to start. But mm-hmm. again, I just become chicken about fights. So that's why I haven't really done anything about that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The sort of physicality of uh, in this fandom, you run into it. It's like, you kind of have to like learn what some karate moves are called and like describe them if you want to write a fight scene. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard. Mm-hmm. Some writers do it well, but it's really, I feel like Brie does it well. Um, right. Lost yeah. Magicians written some stuff uh, where she describes some fights that are great. Um, yeah, I can't. Mm, I can't do it. <laughs> you know, someday maybe. I, I don't know. Um, but yeah, maybe I'll try to find a song that talks about somebody karate chopping someone and that'll inspire me. <laughs> or something. I don't know. But like That's something so that will like get me in the mood to actually not because I mean I did make that statement earlier. Just write. Don't worry if it's correct. But I do feel like if you're writing a fight scene, it's not the same thing as worrying about where you're going to put a pl- a plant. Like I think those are kind yeah. of different because the yes. body is driving the action. Yeah. So you can't really fake that. So yeah. Yeah. 
I just have yeah. to get off the butt and do it. But I know I've almost wanted to take like a karate class just to like research. Me too. <laughs> Me too. For I, so many reasons. Yeah, and yeah, and just like you know, physical health and discipline. And I know um Daryl Vidal actually, um the real Daryl Vidal, he teaches karate for. I can't remember what county it is. He teaches karate in California and they had like a Parks and Rec um, online karate class and I was so close to signing up. I was like, you mean, I think it's more meant for children, but I was like, (laughs) "Um," because it's like six and up and I'm like, well, I am older than six. (laughs) So I almost did that, but anyway, (laughs) so funny. Um, gosh, well, I guess, um, do you have any, uh, do you have anything else to add or, um, plug or talk about? Um, gosh, yeah. I'm just, I'm enjoying your, your Eli Dimitri stuff. So I hope we see more of that or whatever inspires you. I feel like the, the quiver is, we're just trying to inspire, inspire each other to just keep riding in this like dearth between seasons it's hard right now just because there's not new material too yeah i think there does need to be some new material before a lot of things are it's gonna it's gonna be a little hard until there's a little bit more to build on i think yeah because the episodes are truly so short and so you're really just expanding on a world that right now has five hours and that's it so yeah you kind of reach a point where you need more info or more more to happen yep Totally. Um, okay. Well, uh, yeah, just thank you for giving up um, two plus hours of your time. Thank you. I appreciate it. Um, yeah, that sounds good. Um, and I think people can find you on Tumblr at Sue Sees It blog. Yes. And I'll link that. I can link that in the show notes. Um, yeah, that sounds good. Anything else from, from you that I've forgotten? No, I just really appreciate you, you know, doing this and letting people talk about their stuff. I think that's great. Yeah, it's fun. I was really surprised that no one else has, uh, as far as I could tell, has done, uh, you know, something like this, like where anybody talks about fan fiction in a, with, you know, sort of a serious way instead of just making fun of it. <laughs> it's like, uh, yeah, it's yeah. really just podfic or people reading bad fan fiction, so... Well, thank you for coming on, and uh, yeah, we appreciate it. We appreciate your writing, and I hope to see more of you. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Bye. Bye.